0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll discuss the unique Warm Mineral Springs in Sarasota County.
1: It is the one spring that has kind of that ancient tradition of taking the waters that has really been undisturbed throughout time.
0: We'll talk about historic markers in Florida. The three markers tell us about
2: events of the past but they also tell us about the important role of public history and community engagement with the past.
0: And pioneering newspaper woman, Marie Ringo Holderman. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Thousands of years, people have visited Warm Mineral Springs in what is now Sarasota County to restore their health and prolong their lives. To find out more about Warm Mineral Springs, we are consulting Rick Kilby. He's talked with us about other springs previously. Rick Kilby's latest book, Florida's Healing Waters, Gilded Age Mineral Springs, Seaside Resorts, and Health Spas, has earned the Stetson Kennedy Book Award the awards presentation will be available for viewing as part of the Florida Historical Society Virtual Public History Forum May 20th through 22nd at myfloridahistory.org
1: in the 19th century consumption was one of the biggest diseases and it had been for hundreds of years before that but it was particularly bad and that and consumption is what we call today tuberculosis and one of the ways they thought you could heal tuberculosis was to be outdoors and to be in healthy weather. So after the civil war there were a number of soldiers from the north who were stationed in the northeast portion of the state. They went back and they bragged about how wonderful the weather was in winter. And it kind of unleashed the floodgates of northerners coming to Florida in winter for the healthful climate because it was really believed that being in that warm salubrious air and the warm waters because you know the springs are warm in winter would help restore your health, especially for consumptives. So from the 1870s through the early era of the automobile, I call that Florida's golden age of bathing. And people came to our state in large numbers, uh, originally on steamboats, they would enter the port of Jacksonville and the spas at the Springs along the St. Johns River really developed first because they were most accessible because of the steamboat travel on that river. But eventually as railroads started to move into the interior of the state, and the hostilities with the Seminoles came to a conclusion and more of the interior of the state was accessible for tourists, more springs developed. So you started to see springs pop up along the Suwannee and along the Gulf Coast. And eventually, you know, the southern part of the Gulf Coast as far south as uh, Warm Rental Springs, which is uh, near Venice, Florida.
0: Anyone who has taken a swim in a Florida spring knows that they can be quite chilly One of the things that makes Warm Mineral Springs unique is its constant temperature near 87 degrees.
1: So most of these springs in the late 19th century that were established, the spas, were not large first magnitude springs like Rainbow Springs or Silver Springs. These were smaller, mostly third magnitude springs that had a high degree of minerals. So a lot of them are sulfur sulfur springs, so you could smell that sulfur smell that a lot of us remember from our childhood, the drinking water you would get. And a lot of them are opaque, they're not crystal clear. And warm mineral springs, you know, they brag that they have a higher concentration of minerals than any other spring in the world. They say the water is more effective than Vichy water from France, from the mineral water at Baden-Baden, Germany, or even Hot Springs, Arkansas. They say that there's many more minerals there. And people still believe it today, and it is the one spring that has kind of that ancient tradition of taking the waters that has really been undisturbed throughout time. You know, it is not a contemporary spa. There's a direct link to what you do there today to what they used to do hundreds of years at at ancient waters throughout the globe.
0: Speaking of ancient people, there is archaeological evidence of prehistoric people, megafauna, and other animals at Warm Mineral Springs. Rick Kilby.
1: Yeah, the, it's really kind of a unique spring because it's hourglass shape, and it was formed about 20,000 years ago in the Pleistocene era. And when the, when the paleo people were in our state, it was drier and more arid, and the state was, was wider, it would have been a sinkhole with water at the bottom. So we know that they were attracted to it as a source of water, and so were all the animals at the time, like, you know, mastodons. And giant sloths, because we found archaeological remains of those, as well as saber-toothed tigers in the spring. And those people, too, as well, we found their remains in there. My contention is, had the site not been disturbed by amateur archaeologists, it might be as well known as Wendover. Because the remains, some people say those are the oldest human remains found anywhere. And, you know, I think there's a, a lot of archaeology that remains to be done, but like Windover, because it's anaerobic, those remains were kept intact. Unfortunately, one of the amateur archaeologists, his name was Colonel William Royal, he would bring up the remains and ruin it for a professional archaeologist. And there are stories that he used human skulls to decorate his house and do things like that that would make archaeologists today cringe. And it really kind of hurt the reputation of, of War Mineral Springs as an archaeological site. There was one instance where he had a live TV crew and he brought up a skull and they actually found brain matter in the skull like they did at Wendover. But people thought it was a hoax because of that, because, you know, they they really didn't understand how long people had been in Florida at that time. And they thought it was incomprehensible that people could have been here as long as 11,000 years ago.
0: The false story of Juan Ponce de Leon searching for the fountain of youth is one of the most enduring myths in Florida history. At one point, Warm Mineral Springs was believed to be that elusive source of prolonged life. The spring and the buildings associated with it are on the National Register of Historic Places.
1: It probably first became, you know, got on the map of people of European descent in the late 1870s when cattle ranchers would have discovered it and used it as a place to water their cattle. And there's an, a, a travel book from 1875 I believe it's called uh, Wild Florida that mentions it and it's called Big Salt Springs there. There's a little salt springs that still exists and has the same kind of archaeological um, relics in it as well but at some point Big Salt Springs which renamed more Mineral Springs. It's owned by a family called the Browns. Uh, Brown was a millionaire out of Philadelphia and he bought it for his wife Lillian they owned it in the 1920s and there's a, a story that Ringling John Ringling from Sarasota wanted to buy the spring and offered them a quarter of a million dollars and they turned it down because they wanted to develop a health spa there and they never really did they had some kind of very basic bathhouse and they would allow invalids to bathe there for free and then they would charge everybody else a uh, you know a paltry sum supposedly they had a caretaker who had a cat that would swim and um, tame blue jays that that you could feed. So it was kind of an early roadside attraction, but it really became a full-on day spa in 1947. And about that time, developers bought the property and they platted out the area around it and they dug canals. And they really wanted to use the spring itself as an amenity to lure homeowners to buy lots there. And that's when it kind of became associated with the myth of the fountain of youth. A guy named Dr. Joseph Miller wrote an article for the Smithsonian Magazine in 1942 or 43 claiming it was the Fountain of Youth sought by Ponce de Leon. And we know that there's no truth to that whatsoever. And ironically, he was one of the owners of the spring. So you see he had an alternative motive. And they took full advantage of that kind of that marketing angle uh, of being the myth of the Fountain of Youth. And they latched onto the quadricentennial that was happening in the state from 1959 to 1965. 1959 celebrated the landing of Tristan de Luna in Pensacola. In 1965, they were celebrating Pedro Menendez in St. Augustine, and they were kind of somewhere in between, and they thought they could get a lot of travelers who were traveling up and down the Tamiami Trail to pull off to the road and see all the stuff that was going on. Unfortunately, there was a lot of construction going on in te- on Tamiami Trail at that time, so they never had the numbers but they had a lot of attractions and the architecture that was created there was created by notable architects from the Sarasota School of Architecture. So you had a hotel right on the Tamiami Trail built by Victor Lundy that is on the national register today. It's still there, very unique in its design. It looks like it has big toadstools kind of all across the facades. And then the facilities themselves built at the spring for the quadricentennial were by a guy named Jack West who is another Sarasota School architect. And he really paid homage to the spring itself. The spring is hourglass shaped. So if you look at the spa building from above, it's shaped like an hourglass and the length of the building is matches the proportions of the depth of the spring. And one of my favorite things next to that is they built the cyclorama and the cyclorama is a round building and it looks like the spring from overhead and the dimensions of that building echo the dimensions of the spring from overhead. And the cyclorama, was kind of like moving pictures before movies were invented, where they would be a round building with murals and three-dimensional aspects of it. And it was used a lot in this country to depict battles of the Civil War. There's famous one in Gettysburg and a famous one showing the Battle of Atlanta. And there's only about 30 of them left in the United States. The one that is in Warm Mineral Springs depicted the life of Ponce de Leon from his original commission from the king all the way till the discovering the Fountain of Youth to his death. And a lot of those artifacts are not open to the public, but they still remain in that building today.
0: After some ownership disputes in recent years, Warm Mineral Springs is once again an active destination for people who seek what they believe are its restorative powers. Rick Kilby.
1: I first visited War Mineral Springs in 2011 and it was run by uh, a vendor and it was had kind of a new agey vibe. So it was kind of like old world meets new age. And it was a very interesting site. There was a restaurant there. A lot of the people who go there to take the waters today are from Europe. So they had a little cafe at the time where they would serve stuff like borscht and things that mostly Russians would like to have on their menu because that's a, a large part of the, the customer base that is there. But at some point, there was a dispute between the city of Northport, that's where Warm Mineral Springs is, and the and Sarasota County, who, who co-owned the spring. And they couldn't agree on a vendor, so it closed for a time. So these Eastern Europeans and other locals who take the waters there on a daily basis had no place to go. And there was a huge outrage or, or protests erupted. And eventually, they came to an agreement and Northport owns the facility outright right now. So a lot of the new agey kind of stuff kind of has gone by the wayside, and the, there's no longer a cafe there. But there are big plans. They, they uh, the spring itself was on the historic register, but they recently had the buildings added, the designed by those those architects, to the historic register. And so they know the treasures that they have and how wonderful those facilities are. And they're gonna add to it. They have a master plan. They wanna add a place for a community garden. They wanna add hiking trails. They wanna add an equestrian center and a place for um, outdoor performance. So they have big plans for it. And from what I've been able to observe, it seems like they really did it the right way where there was a lot of community interaction, a lot of input from community members who use the facility. So they're trying to kind of keep the healthful aspects of it, but make it a bit more natural and make it a very, very functional asset for the entire community.
0: Rick Kilby is the author of the book, Florida's Healing Waters, Gilded Age Mineral Springs, Seaside Resorts and Health Spas, which has earned the 2021 Stetson Kennedy Book Award. You can watch the awards presentation as part of the Florida Historical Society Virtual Public History Forum May 20th through 22nd at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brotmarkle Visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org to find great books on Florida history and culture, listen to archived editions of this program, watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, traveling around Florida, we often see historical markers along the side of the road. Who determines the placement of historic markers, and what, if any, role do they play in the world of academic historians?
2: In our discussion today, I will be bringing together two aspects of my work the editorship of the Florida Historical Quarterly, and my position as director of the Rich's Digital Archiving Project. The two positions overlap frequently when the topic is public history, of which the placement of public markers and monuments is a part. In the last year or so, I have had the opportunity to publish an article by Eric Hanel and Karen Hanel in the Quarterly on public history research that resulted in the dedication of a historic marker. During the same period, the Riches team documented the dedication of two other historic markers. The erection of historical markers comes under the supervision of the Florida Department of State, and the application process requires considerable research and writing skills. Applicants must provide research to show historical significance, provide suggested marker text, obtain permission for placement, purchase the marker, and arranged for installation and upkeep. It is a lengthy process that is most frequently undertaken by local historical societies. The three historical markers featured in this broadcast show the range of topics to be found on historical markers.
0: Now, I know Orange County unveiled a new historic marker in 2019 as the county prepared to commemorate the Ocoee Massacre. Can you tell us about that? Yes, in June
2: 2019, hundreds of citizens of Orange County and Central Florida gathered at Orlando's Heritage Square in front of the Orange County Regional History Center for the unveiling of a historic marker honoring July Perry, who was lynched on election night 1920 in what was the prelude to a violent attack on the black community in Ocoee. The hours-long attack destroyed 25 black homes, two black churches, and a black Masonic lodge. An unknown number of blacks were killed. Numbers ranged from 6 to 30. The Ocoee Massacre remains one of the most violent events in American election history. The unveiling event represented years of work by a broad cross-section of the community. The Truth and Justice Project, working with the Montgomery, Alabama-based Equal Justice Initiative, arranged for the marker. Sponsors of the unveiling event included Bridge the Gap Coalition, the City of Orlando, Orange County Government, the Orange County Public Library System, and the Orange County Regional History Center. Remembering the Okoe Massacre and honoring July Perry were long overdue. At the time of the unveiling, sponsors of the event anticipated a year-long public series of events and public discussions on race and voting rights. The COVID-19 pandemic intervened and challenged planners to find new ways to accomplish their goals. Zoom community discussions, socially distanced exhibits, digital exhibits, documentary films, and podcasts engaged thousands of Central Floridians and brought the story of the Ocoee massacre to people across the nation and around the globe in ways organizers of the event had not previously anticipated.
0: Connie, you indicated that the Florida Historical Quarterly recently published an article that coincided with the unveiling of an historic monument. What was that about?
2: Also in 2019, Eric Hanel and Carol Hanel, scholars from St. Leo University, saw the completion of their research on the Seminole chief Chipko and the Pasco County town of Chipko with the publication of an article in the Quarterly and the dedication of a historic marker. Named in honor of Seminole Chief Chipko, the town was an important center of commerce and shipping in the 19th century. After the freeze of 1895 and the loss of the citrus groves in the area, the town slipped into oblivion and disappeared from maps. As a result of the work of the Hanels, the historic marker was unveiled in September 2019 to honor the forgotten town and Chief Chipko. The scholars framed the quarterly article in the context of place and memory, specifically challenging us to consider what we choose to remember and decide to forget. The article and the marker tell us about a Seminole man and a forgotten town of the 19th century, but they also call for an awareness of the erasure of communities and community names, particularly when they are associated with indigenous peoples and minorities.
0: I know that our third example of an historic marker offered the Riches team the opportunity to collect oral histories from participants in the event that was commemorated. Tell us about that.
2: The third marker was unveiled in March 2021 and commemorated a more recent event that occurred in January 1962 in Oviedo, Florida. A number of participants in the unveiling were present at the original event and provided oral histories that will be archived in the Riches database. The event was the crash of a military plane in a citrus grove just two blocks from the city's school. The plane, piloted by Lieutenant Charles Hodgate, had been damaged on takeoff from Sanford Naval Air Station and was advised to head east, away from more populated areas, to dump fuel and prepare for a crash landing. By the time the plane reached Oviedo, its altitude was only slightly above treetop level, as students watched in horror as the plane's flight path placed it on a course for a collision with the school. At the last moment, one of the three crew members bailed out, and Lieutenant Hodgate managed to turn the aircraft away from the school, crashing into a nearby citrus grove. Lieutenant Hodgate and the remaining members of the crew perished, No one on the ground was injured. The town of Oviedo has long remembered the actions of Lieutenant Hodgate as an act of heroism that saved their children. Wanting to honor that heroism, the Oviedo Preservation Society and the Oviedo Historical Society completed the work to obtain a historic marker to be erected at the site of the crash. The children of Lieutenant Hodgate flew in from their homes in Massachusetts to attend the ceremony, Charles Hodgate, the son of Lieutenant Hodgate, was two years old at the time of the crash. Tracy Montour, the daughter of Lieutenant Hodgate, never knew her father. Her mother learned she was pregnant with her second child on the day of the funeral. Both children had always viewed their father as a hero, but they had not previously understood how important his heroic actions were to the town of Oviedo. The three markers tell us about events of the past but they also tell us about the important role of public history and community engagement with the past. In Orange County, we see a community confronting its difficult history and engaging with the past in the hopes of a more equitable future. In Pasco County, the marker honoring Chief Chipko and the forgotten town of Chipko challenges us to consider what we choose to remember and decide to forget. And in Seminole County, we find a community expressing its gratitude and honoring the memory of men whose selfless actions saved a town's children.
0: Some fascinating stories, thanks Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. This is Florida Frontiers. Before Al Newirth and USA Today was pioneer newspaper woman Marie Ringo Holderman. Holly Baker has the story.
3: Dr. Kimberly Wilmot Voss is a professor of journalism at the University of Central Florida in Orlando. She is also the author of several books, including The Food Section, Newspaper Women and the Culinary Community, and Women Politicking Politely, Advancing Feminism in the 1960s and 1970s. She recently talked to me about Marie Ringo Holderman. Known as the First Lady of Florida Journalism, Holderman founded the Cocoa Tribune in Cocoa, Florida in 1917. When Marie Ringo Holderman founded the Cocoa Tribune, very few women had positions in journalism, particularly as editors, owners, or publishers. Marie is
4: known largely as the First Lady of Florida Journalism, and rightfully so. Uh, she was truly a pioneer, and. She did some amazing things from simply owning newspapers to starting a second newspaper. She championed causes from suffrage to establishing Sebastian Inlet. She did this at a time when women just didn't have that much space in the public sphere. When she started her Coco newspaper, it was 1917. Women didn't even have the right to vote yet. And she was known as a smart journalist and also a smart businesswoman. By the time she gets to Coco, she's already run her own newspaper and sold it. And so she had experience. In fact, her Manatee newspaper, the local city council asked her not to leave, asked her not to sell it because the newspaper was such a central part of their community. So she's kind of taking that with her, if you will, her experience when she gets over to Coco, which of course was a small, small community
3: back then. When Marie Ringo Holderman arrived in Cocoa in 1917, it was a small fishing village with a population of 900 people. Over the next few decades, the number of Cocoa residents more than quadrupled. The Cocoa Tribune played an important role in informing and influencing the community as it grew. This was purely her paper.
4: She was married, she had a child, but uh, she was the owner and the editor. So although she was married and her husband handled some of the business background, this was her paper. So she was a local celebrity. If you go online, you can kind of see stories about her being recognized, boats being named for her. When she traveled into South Florida, it makes the newspapers. So she started at the newspaper, and it was really just her and two or three other employees. By the time she leaves the newspaper, she has 40 employees. So she's developing, you know, as the community is growing, so was her newspaper. She was all about the editorial role. She wrote columns. And even as folks came in, as she hired more people, it was her voice that was central to that newspaper.
3: Marie Ringo Holderman successfully ran the Cocoa Tribune for almost 50 years. In 1965, she sold her newspaper to the Gannett Company. She passed away three years later at the age of 83. Dr. Kimberly Voss. She really was so ahead of her time. You know, if you look at even her byline, she
4: never gave up her maiden name. And those are things that we don't really see kind of coming back again into the late 60s and early 70s. Her ability to sell her newspaper to Gannett, that was the first Gannett paper in Florida, was a really big deal. And um, Al North, who was Lori Wilson's husband, was the one that finally convinced her to sell. But many men came down trying to uh, take that newspaper. And she said no every single time. Um, So she had to be courted and treated with authority. And so it was a really impressive concept, not only own the newspaper, but make those kinds of decisions that I don't think women were always respected for. She started in 1917 and sold her newspaper in 1965. Oh, the things she lived through. (laughs) You know, it's kind of an amazing concept that she kept doing that, particularly as Coco grew and her newspaper grew. She really is one of those women that should be remembered in Florida history.
3: For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco.
0: You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week, and until then, find us anytime on Facebook and at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Holly Baker and Connie Lester. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State, Division of Historical Resources, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.